It's Tuesday, March 21st, 1815, around 8 p.m. Shadows creep across the streets of London as the sun dips below the rooftops. Horses' hooves clack off cobblestones. Weary-looking workers head home after a hard day, some stopping by a tavern for a well-earned drink. Alongside the throng of people on Chancery Lane, a coach pulls up and two figures climb out, a sickly young man and an anxious middle-aged woman. Robert Gadsden clambers down slowly and unsteadily, swaying slightly on the pavement. His face is ash gray, his lips are dry and a cold sweat coats his brow. He doesn't look well. But then, that is precisely the reason for his urgent journey. Gadsden is an apprentice. He works for Robert Turner, a merchant, who lives at number 68 with his pregnant wife, Charlotte. Climbing down from the carriage behind Gadsden is Robert's mother, Margaret Turner, whom the young apprentice had been sent to fetch. You see, there's an emergency brewing at 68 Chancery Lane. It seems the entire Turner household, Robert, Charlotte, and their servants, as well as Margaret's own husband, Orlebar Turner, who is visiting, have all suddenly taken ill. Margaret has concern written all over her face. Clutching up her dress hems, she nearly knocks the fragile-looking Gadsden over in her rush towards her son's front door. Gadsden himself simply tries to draw breath. Since departing some hours ago, he has been afflicted with intense stomach pain, and their progress was slow due to his relentless vomiting. Margaret hurries inside number 68. When she sees her family, she's shocked by how similar and how serious their symptoms are. Each of them are in agony, clutching their stomachs in pain and retching uncontrollably. In the dining room, she finds an eerie scene. Plates unfinished, wine half-drunk, cutlery and chairs strewn about in disarray. Clearly, the affliction struck during dinner. Margaret sees the young cook, Eliza Fenning, suffering alongside them. It doesn't take long to surmise that it might be something they've all eaten. Earlier, Eliza served a meal of steak and dumplings. Indeed, on each of the plates, left abandoned, lies a half-eaten dumpling. Margaret now kneels beside Eliza, dabbing at the sheen of sweat on her forehead. Oh, those devilish dumplings, Margaret says, shaking her head. Not the dumplings, Eliza croaks painfully. The milk. The cook explains that one of the maids had fetched milk to make the sauce that the dumplings were served with, a maid who is now nowhere to be seen. Who made the sauce? Margaret inquires. Eliza replies that it was the mistress of the house, Margaret's daughter-in-law, Charlotte. That cannot be, Margaret exclaims perhaps unwilling to believe that Charlotte could be blamed for any of this. But whatever the cause, explanations must wait. They all need medical attention, fast. They send for a local doctor and then for a surgeon trusted by the family. As both medical men do what they can to attend to their patients, 
they soon speculate as to what might have caused the mysterious illness. In the days that follow, there are accusations of foul play, even attempted murder. Before long, the whole of London is talking about the poisoning on Chancery Lane. The answers when they come will spark scandal. A scandal which Eliza Fenning, the young cook, finds herself caught right in the middle of. At the moment of death, people often have an overwhelming need to get their biggest secret off their chests. From murder, fake identities, illicit affairs, and even government cover-ups, this show dives deep into the world's most explosive deathbed confessions. This is the story of Elizabeth Fenning, a woman accused of betraying her employers. It's the story of a deathbed confession that threw a landmark criminal case into question, a case that split public opinion across the country. It's about a legal system stacked against the common people and a young girl's fight for justice. I'm Estefania Hageman, and this is Deathbed Confessions. Life is full of awesome what ifs and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out of pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. The Hargan women seem to have it all. We were blessed. My mom was amazing. But detectives would soon discover inside the house there were the bodies of two women. A story of betrayal you would struggle to believe if it wasn't true. I am just praying to God, this is a sick joke. From 48 Hours, this is Blood is Thicker, The Hargan Family Killings. Listen to Blood is Thicker, The Hargan Family Killings, wherever you get your podcasts. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code SPOTIFY for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Elizabeth Fenning is born on June 10, 1793 in the Caribbean island of Dominica. Her father, William, is an English soldier stationed there. Her mother, Mary, is Irish. She and William met when he served a tour of duty in Cork, Ireland. Three years after Elizabeth is born, the family returns to England. William applies for and receives his discharge papers. He moves to London with his wife and daughter, who is affectionately known to all as Eliza. Eliza's parents both secure jobs, not well-paid, but honest work. Eliza becomes a servant at the age of 14 to help bring extra money in for the family. She works for several households across the next four years. In January 1815, when Eliza is 18, she finds new employment working for the Turners. They live on Chancery Lane in the heart of the city and only half a mile from the banks of the River Thames. They're a well-to-do middle-class family. 
The master of the house, Robert Turner, has a business that provides stationery to the legal profession. Eliza settles quickly into her new role. She's responsible for cooking the meals for Robert, his wife Charlotte, and the other members of the staff who live there. She works hard and is diligent and respectful, hoping to make the best of a good position. Unfortunately, things get off to a bad start when she has a run-in with her mistress, Charlotte Turner, just three weeks into her employment. Charlotte summons Eliza one morning to give her notice. She is in a rage and threatens to dismiss her. Charlotte says she saw the young cook late the night before visiting the room of two young male apprentices. She claims Eliza was partially dressed. Eliza protests, explaining she was just going in to fetch a candle, but Charlotte scolds her for her unacceptable behavior. Eliza wants to protest further, but instead shows contrition. Begging forgiveness, she apparently manages to sway Charlotte, who eventually relents and allows her to stay. Although Eliza feels aggrieved by her dressing down, she's thankful to have been kept on. The incident seems to be quickly forgotten, for the time being at least. Little does Eliza know it'll be brought up again in just a few short months. When it does, she'll be stood before a jury and Eliza will be fighting for her life. There will be differing accounts of what happens next. What follows, though, is Eliza's story. It's March 21st, 1815, and Eliza is in the kitchen. It's split across two rooms, and Eliza is in the rear of the two. She busies herself with preparing food for the household. She makes the dough for the dumplings before heading to the butcher's for some steak. When she gets back, she sets about cleaning the cutlery, but hears someone in the front section where she has left the dough to rise. She thinks nothing of it and continues with her work. Soon after, she sees one of the apprentices, Thomas King, come out of the front kitchen. She asks him what he's been doing, but he ignores her and heads up to his room. At 2.30 that afternoon, Charlotte sends one of the other servants to fetch some milk to make the sauce that will accompany the dumplings. Around 3 p.m., once everything is prepared, Eliza serves the food to the Turner family. She's hungry herself, and after bringing the leftover dumplings back into the kitchen, she eats part of one. As she begins tidying the kitchen, the second apprentice, Roger Gadsden, comes in and has a little bite. Shortly after Gadsden leaves, Eliza suddenly stops her work, feeling a twinge of pain in her head. It intensifies quickly, sharp and stabbing, like a knife plunging deep behind her eyes. A moment later, her stomach lurches and she barely makes it to the toilet before she's violently sick. Moments later, Robert Turner strides into the kitchen. Eliza, head spinning, manages a weak smile. She quickly sees that her master looks about as good as she feels pasty-faced with a sheen of sweat glistening across his brow. He tells her that he and the other family members have taken ill. He blames her cooking and asks what she has done to them, but Eliza is adamant she has done nothing out of the ordinary. 
he looks far from convinced and disappears back to join his family. Over the next hour or so, things only get worse. A few hours later, Margaret Turner, Robert's mother, arrives. Her eyes widen in shock as she sees the state of her family. Her son, Robert, her husband, Orlebar, and daughter-in-law, Charlotte, are all in a terrible way. Their symptoms are the same. Headaches, stomach pain, nausea, and vomiting. She worries for Charlotte in particular, who is pregnant. It's not just the Turner family who are suffering. The apprentice, Gadsden, who brought her here, has been writhing in pain himself the whole way. Eliza is similarly afflicted. Thomas King, the other apprentice, appears unaffected. Margaret sends him to fetch the family physician immediately. It's around nine o'clock that evening when John Marshall, the doctor, arrives. He has known the Turner family for nearly a decade and is concerned with what he sees. Eliza Fenning catches his eye first. She's slumped at the bottom of the stairs. Her face is flushed pink and she can't stop retching. She talks through gritted teeth as she tells him of the excruciating pain in her stomach. With the symptoms she is presenting, Marshall deems it could be one of two things, cholera or poison. The doctor knows that both would result in a burning sensation in the throat. But unlike cholera, with poison, this is felt before vomiting even begins. Cholera can be fatal in a matter of days, but if it's poison, there might be hours or even less to save his patients. He examines her closely, learning that the Turners have all eaten the same food. Eliza confirms she too ate a small piece of dumpling. Weighing this up, the doctor decides that in his experience, poisoning is the more likely of the two. He tells Eliza to drink large amounts of milk mixed with water and hurries upstairs to tend to his other patients. Rushing into Robert Turner's bedroom, he finds the master of the house in bed. Robert tells the doctor he feels like his whole body is on fire. His stomach is knotted in pain and his head pounds like it's been beaten with a hammer. Robert tries to get up to go to the bathroom, but his body won't obey and he collapses to the floor. The doctor quickly helps him back into bed and tells him to rest. He treats Robert with a mixture of laxatives to help purge his body of any remaining poison. That plus plenty of fluids is the best he can offer. When he has finished tending to the Turners, the doctor goes to check on Eliza. She has taken to her bed. Initially, she refuses his offer of medication, but eventually his persuasion and her own discomfort forces her to give in. The doctor can do no more for them tonight. He leaves Margaret Turner with instructions about how often to readminister the medicines for everyone. Before he goes, though, he feels obliged to look around to see if he can pinpoint the source of the poison. In the kitchen, he finds the remains of the dumplings, long since cold. Taking care as he does so, the doctor picks up a knife and cuts several of them into thin slices. He peers closely at the exposed insides, seeing white particles speckled throughout. His blood runs cold. He immediately fears it could be arsenic. 
It's a common enough household chemical as a means of pest control, putting it down for rats and mice. It's also flavorless and at room temperature, odorless. And given in large enough quantities, it's also highly toxic to humans. Scientists have limited knowledge of toxicology and rely on the appearance of a substance to identify whether it's arsenic or not. The doctor gets to work applying what he knows. He starts by placing a slice of dumpling on a coin, then holding it over a candle. After a moment, he catches a whiff of garlic, exactly the odor that arsenic is said to give off when heated. Next, he lets the coin cool, noting the white residue left behind. In his experience, this coating is proof that the food contains arsenic. It's not clear why he doesn't take his findings straight to the police the same evening. Instead, knowing he's done all he can, Dr. Marshall heads home to get some sleep. Any further investigations can wait until tomorrow. As the night wears on, thankfully, the family begins to recover. Charlotte Turner is first to see an improvement. By the morning of March 22nd, Robert and his father are well on the road to recovery. Thanks to the combination of violent retching and the quick application of laxatives and fluids, it seems the toxins were evacuated before fatal damage was done. Now attention turns to investigation. If Dr. Marshall is right, and they've all been deliberately poisoned, the obvious question is, by whom and why? Having recovered the fastest, Orlebar Turner, Robert's father, wastes no time. He heads in to see Eliza, who is still in bed, and questions her about yesterday's meal. She's adamant that there was nothing wrong with her cooking. She claims it must have been the milk brought in by one of the other servants. Later that morning, Dr. Marshall returns, sharing with Orlebar the results of the tests he performed the previous night. At the mention of arsenic, Orlebar's face grows pale. He turns and heads straight for his office. He opens the desk drawer. It's empty. The white paper packet that was clearly labeled arsenic, deadly poison, is now missing. Next, Orlebar heads to the kitchen. Everything has been left out from the day before. He picks up the pan that the dumplings had been mixed in and adds a little water to the remnants. He stirs it up, then lets it settle, noting a white residue in the bottom. He shakes his head, gritting his teeth at the thought that someone has dared to try and harm him and his family. Hi, listeners. Estefania here. We hope you enjoy this trailer for Noiser's new show, Detectives Don't Sleep. Listen wherever you get your podcasts with new episodes airing every Tuesday. What makes a great detective? If you arrived at a crime scene, would you have what it takes to crack the case wide open? Would you spot the vital clue that everyone else has missed? Could you unravel the suspect's perfect alibi? And could you confront a murderer? Introducing Detectives Don't Sleep, 
the new whodunit podcast from Noiser. Each week, we'll take you beyond the police tape to shadow the real detectives who worked history's most intriguing cases. You'll be right there, solving a murder on the beaches of the Bahamas, busting neo-Nazi art dealers in the back streets of Europe, and unmasking conmen in Beverly Hills. These detectives, they all have one thing in common. They can never truly rest until they've closed the case. Listen to Detectives Don't Sleep wherever you get your podcasts. Going for your first ever run around the park. Literally running errands all over town. Running for the finish line and your personal best. If you run, you're a runner. Find the shoes and clothes to run your way at newbalance.com slash running. New Balance. Run your way. The doctor helps him to dry the powder. If it is indeed arsenic, just the small amount in the pan is enough to kill at least 10 adults. He repeats last night's test on the substance with the same results. As compelling as this seems, the doctor wants to leave no stone unturned and calls in a prominent chemist friend to carry out further tests. When completed, these prove, in his opinion, beyond any doubt, that arsenic is to blame and that it was intentionally worked into the dumpling mix. It was an attempted murder. The obvious suspect is glaring. The cook, Eliza Fenning. By Thursday, March 23rd, 48 hours after taking ill, Eliza is still recovering in bed. This doesn't stop Orla Barr and her employer, the recovered Robert Turner, from questioning her again. They accuse her outright of having taken some arsenic from the desk drawer. She denies it each time, but Robert Turner doesn't believe her. Eliza listens in horror as the men tell her about the evidence they found. Unimpressed with her denials, they head out, intent on taking their story to a magistrate at nearby Hatton Garden. While they're gone, Eliza, fearing that nobody will believe her, drags herself out of bed. She's still weak, and every step is an effort. Joints ache and her head pounds. She doesn't intend to wait around and see what happens after the family reports her. Innocent or not, she knows very well whose story the authorities will believe. Eliza hurries as best as she can manage down creaky stairs and along the hallway. She doesn't have a plan beyond getting out of the house, but as she reaches the door to the street, one of the apprentices, Thomas King, blocks her way. It isn't clear if Eliza recalls that Thomas King is the very man she saw coming out of the kitchen the day of the poisoning. That he had been alone with the dumpling mix. That he avoided eating any himself. And as the family suffered, healthy as he was, that he was nowhere to be seen. But regardless of the thoughts now spinning through her muddled head, the main thing is that he stands between her and escape. King slowly bolts the door. Eliza is in no state to try and fight her way past him. She slumps to the floor, defeated. 
It's not long after when Orlebar and Robert return, bringing with them a policeman. Eliza's shoulders slump even lower when she sees the officer. Even as she weakly protests her innocence, she is arrested on suspicion of the attempted murder of the Turner family. It's Tuesday, April 11th. Three weeks have passed since the Turner family and several members of their household almost died from poisoning. The famous courthouse at the Old Bailey in central London is the stage on which Eliza Fenning's trial will play out today. Horse-drawn carriages trundle past as spectators gather outside waiting to get in and bag a spot in the public gallery. The case has made headlines. All of London is talking about it, and opinions vary to say the least. Some claim she's been prosecuted as an example to the working classes. Others say she's exactly where she needs to be. The courtroom is like an amphitheater, the judge's bench raised above the room. Eliza is ushered in, looking considerably older than her 20 years. The last few weeks have taken their toll. She takes her place in the dock, glancing nervously across at where the 12 members of the jury sit, an all-male panel. The whole Turner family is here today, too. Not one of them in support of Eliza, though. They're all here to give evidence against her. Eliza looks at her attorney. Her parents have scraped together money for his fee, and her life is in his hands. She'll only be able to have her say at the end of proceedings. It's how it goes. First, the jury will hear all the evidence against her. The first to be questioned is Charlotte Turner. She talks about the disagreement with Eliza weeks before the poisoning, where she saw the young cook in the room of the two male apprentices. This, the court hears, is a possible motive for the crime. Eliza being angry at Charlotte's rebuke. Whether or not that's motive enough for murder, at the very least, it serves to demonstrate to the Edwardian judge and jurors the cook's low morals and deviant character. What's more, it seems Eliza has practically begged Charlotte to let her make the dumplings as far back as a fortnight before the incident. Perhaps Eliza had been planning murder all along, wearing the Turners down until they let her make the deadly dish. Orlebar Turner takes the stand next. He talks about his own bout of illness and seeing his son struck down even worse than himself, how it was one of the most distressing things he has ever witnessed. He's asked how Eliza behaved the day they all fell ill. Did you observe the prisoner? Did she give you any assistance? The prosecutor asks. Not the smallest, Orlebar replies. It was discovered that she did not appear concerned at our situation. Discovered by whom is left unexplained, nor is it mentioned that Eliza herself was grievously ill at the time. As the jurors shake their head in disapproving judgment, Eliza must want to jump and shout to defend herself as this false characterization is allowed to stand. But disrupting proceedings will not help her, as well she knows. Orlebar Turner goes on, stating that at no time did he see Eliza eat any of the dumplings herself. Next, he walks the court through how he had discovered remnants of the alleged poison in the kitchen the morning afterwards. As for the arsenic itself, 
he confirms that anyone could have accessed it in the unlocked drawer. He last saw it on March 7th, two weeks before the incident, but suggests Eliza would have known of its existence. One of the apprentices, Robert Gadsden, takes the stand next. There may not be a witness who'll say they saw Eliza sprinkling arsenic in the dough, but what Gadsden has to say comes pretty close. He recalls how he had walked into the kitchen that afternoon, belly growling with hunger. When he'd gone to eat a mouthful of dumpling, he claims Eliza warned him not to, telling him it was cold and heavy and would do him no good. He ate some anyway, but stopped after she repeated her warnings. The inference is clear. Gadsden also claims to have seen Eliza rummaging in the same drawer the arsenic was kept in. Eliza denies this and begs the court to call the other apprentice, Thomas King, to the stand. But her request is denied. Why the Turners haven't called King themselves is unclear. In fact, given he was the only household member unafflicted, his absence is conspicuous to many. Last to take the stand is Dr. Marshall. Bearing in mind he's the closest thing to an expert witness the prosecutors have, his testimony is surprisingly brief. He reiterates his belief that the food he had examined in the kitchen contained arsenic, but he provides no evidence to support this. Then again, no questions are asked about the tests he carried out either. In fact, at no point in the trial is any evidence given of there being poison in the dumplings just his say-so. At one point, some blackened, tarnished cutlery from the deadly dinner table is produced as evidence. When asked if arsenic could produce such an effect, Dr. Marshall solemnly confirms it. I have no doubt. Regardless of the fact that he is incorrect on this point, why would the jury doubt him? The doctor steps down and the prosecution rests. At last, Eliza gets her chance to speak. She's brief and to the point, calling five character witnesses to try and convince the court she's not capable of an act like this. She acknowledges the incident where Charlotte Turner told her off for being in the apprentice's room. She downplays it though, saying it had been given no more thought. I am truly innocent of the whole charge, she tells the court. And with that, the case is over. All that remains now is for the jury to consider their verdict. As defenses go, Eliza's has been spectacularly poor. Her attorney has barely spoken up. In fact, he hasn't even stayed in court to hear the summaries. The evidence presented, though damning, is still circumstantial and the motive weak, leaning heavily on the Turner family's version of events. But such is the fear of poison and the notion of the working class rising up against their masters, it's clear that many minds are already set. Throughout the trial, her morals and character have been called into question. The closing statement reminds the jury that Eliza had failed to offer aid to her employers. Again, there's no mention of the fact that she herself had been suffering alongside them. As it turns out, the jury don't have much to debate. It's only a matter of minutes before a decision is reached. The courtroom falls silent as it's read out. 
guilty. The sentence, death by hanging. Eliza's hand flutters to her mouth, tears well in her eyes, and she dissolves into a fit of sobbing. Bailiffs gesture for her to follow them out of the dock. Whatever strength she had in her legs has been sapped by the verdict, and they have to carry her out of the courtroom. She is taken back to Newgate Prison and placed in a cell reserved for those condemned to die. It's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price. Priceline. Hear that? It's the sound of someone whacking the ground with a rake. Specifically, they're beating around the bush, which we've done enough of in this ad too, so let's get right to it. The new Moneymaker scratch-off from the Ohio Lottery doesn't beat around the bush. Moneymaker. Play the game and you could win money, up to $2 million. With more than $88 million in prizes, ranging from $50 to $500, Moneymaker cuts right to the cash. Lottery players are subject to Ohio laws and commission regulations. Play responsibly. There's a flourishing newspaper industry in London at the time, and the verdict captures the attention of the press. Opinions are split. The more liberal publications cry out about a miscarriage of justice, while the conservative papers applaud her death sentence. It's while waiting for an execution date to be set that those who believe in Eliza's innocence launch a campaign to undo her conviction. Aside from suspicions over the selection of witnesses and the weight given to so-called expert opinion, the general feeling is that there's little hard evidence to prove her guilt. However, they face an uphill battle. In 1815, there is no court of appeal. Only two avenues are open to stop her execution. One is to petition the Home Secretary. The other is to appeal to the Prince Regent for a royal pardon. The flurry of letters are submitted to both in the weeks that follow. In a curious turn of events, Orlebar and Robert Turner both appear to have a change of heart about Eliza's sentencing. Why is unclear, but they indicate they are willing to sign a petition asking for a reprieve. On hearing this, however, the judge who presided over the case pays them both a visit. He listens to them in turn, but assures them there is no doubt in his mind that the correct decision was reached. In fact, he goes one step further. He makes it clear to the Turners that should she be pardoned, then the question of guilt would be reopened and that suspicion could fall on a member of their own family. Faced with this possibility, the Turners soon back down and remove their names from the petition. Eliza's only hope is that the pleas already submitted to the Home Secretary and Prince Regent find a sympathetic ear. Whatever happens now, it needs to be quick. Her date with the hangman has been set as July 26th. It's July 22nd, four days before Eliza is due to be hanged. 
With public debate raging over the fate of the prisoner, one London paper reports that a meeting has taken place that day in the office of the Home Secretary. Present were the Lord Chancellor and the judge who had presided over Eliza's case. They allegedly discussed her case and all that has been said about it since the conviction. Clearly, they're concerned with the public interest over the affair. But in the end, they find no reason to interfere with the ruling. Eliza is still scheduled to die in a matter of days. Two days later, on July 24th, Eliza makes a final plea from her cell. She requests an audience with her employers, the Turners. They agree and visit her in Newgate Prison. No doubt wondering what it is she wishes to talk about. Perhaps with her execution less than 48 hours away, she wishes to finally confess her guilt. On the contrary, Eliza is furious and slings accusations at Charlotte Turner. She alleges that there was something going on between her and the apprentice Thomas King. She suggests that Charlotte might know far more about how the arsenic got into the dumplings than she ever could. Shocked, the Turners depart, leaving Eliza in her cell once again. Was this a desperate attempt by an innocent woman to provoke Charlotte into saying something incriminating? The allegation that she was involved with King poses questions that were never addressed in court. Not least, the young apprentice's movements over the day in question. Whatever the truth of the matter, Eliza has no more cards to play. All she could do now is count down the hours. The day before the execution, on July 25th, there's an unexpected twist. A London chemist comes forward with a startling claim that could threaten to throw the whole affair into confusion. His comments regard the master of the house, Robert Turner. The chemist says that sometime around September or October of the previous year, Robert had come to see him in a state of distress. In fact, he describes him as wild and deranged. He claims Robert made some worrying statements, saying how he would destroy himself and his wife unless someone stopped him. The chemist shares this information with the judge. Why he left it so late to come forward isn't clear, but it seems it is indeed too late to make any difference. The judge, without sharing his rationale, chooses not to do anything with this new information. There's nothing to suggest Robert is ever investigated as a suspect at this point, despite this new and potentially explosive claim. With no last-minute stay of execution in sight, Eliza now has less than 24 hours to live. Wednesday, July 26th, the day of the execution has arrived. It's a few minutes to eight in the morning, but Eliza has been up since dawn. She has spent the last few hours praying in her cell. Outside Newgate Prison, a crowd has been gathering, over 40,000 strong by some estimates. Executions are quite the public spectacle and not to be missed, but this one has fired up the public imagination with the working class in particular, thanks to press coverage and the strength of the opinions it's produced. A little after eight, Eliza Fenning is let out into the prison yard. She's dressed in a white muslin cap and dress. She's almost bridal in appearance. 
Her hands are tied in front of her and a noose placed around her neck. It isn't heavy, but the touch of the rope makes her flinch. The loose end is wound around her waist for now. She's one of three people to be hanged today. Eliza and the two men who share her fate are led through a long series of subterranean corridors to where the scaffold has been erected outside the prison walls. It's around 8.15 by the time she stands by the steps that lead up to the raised platform. She appears calm, on the outside at least, as she makes her way up the stairs. The priest mutters prayers by her side as the hangman uncoils the length of rope from around her waist, throwing it over the beam above and tying it in place. Next, the executioner tries to cover her face with a cap she's wearing. It's too small, so instead he whips out a handkerchief. Do not let him put it on, she begs the priest, but she's helpless to stop him and her eyes are covered. As the final minutes tick away, she just has time to say her last words to the priest. The final public declaration from a God-fearing woman is huge. Many watching might assume she is finally about to confess her sins. To lie now, with death imminent, would be senseless. It would risk damning her eternal soul before God. Eliza, though, doesn't deviate from what she's said all along. I am innocent, she proclaims. Before she can say anything else, the trapdoor opens beneath her feet and the rope snaps tight as she drops to her death. Eliza's parents are in the crowd, and as the rest of the onlookers start to slip away, her father has to wait a full hour before they take her down. It's not bad enough he has just watched his daughter be executed. He has to pay the executioner's fees to get her body released for burial. But if the authorities hope that Eliza's death would put an end to the affair, they are mistaken. In the days that follow, protesters gather outside the Turner House on Chancery Lane. Chants and cries of injustice go up, and as numbers swell, the mood threatens to turn violent. Eventually, police officers are dispatched to disperse the mob and protect the middle-class family inside. Five days after her execution, her funeral takes place. Over 40 police officers are there to keep the peace once again. Eliza's coffin is carried by six women, all dressed in white, a mirror image of how she'd looked as she stood on the gallows. Estimates put the total in attendance in and around the churchyard at around 10,000. It's testament to just how strongly public opinion leans in Eliza's favor. Her fight may be over, but as Eliza's body is lowered into the ground, there are those who remain determined to see justice done. If not for the young cook, then for those who might come after her. Writer and journalist William Hone was one of those who witnessed Eliza's execution and funeral. Even after her death, he carries out his own inquiries and believes he pokes enough holes through the conviction to see daylight. Later the same year, he publishes a book that draws attention to each and every shortcoming in the investigation and trial. 
The book is considered by some to be a landmark in investigative journalism, scathing in its criticism of both the class and the legal system. Whereas public interest slowly wanes and the case is forgotten, the impact on the legal system is longer lasting. One historic byproduct of the case against Eliza Fenning is the effect it has on forensic science. In 1828, the first professor in the field is appointed at the University of London. Through demonstrations, he shows how unreliable the so-called scientific tests were that helped convict Eliza. His work leads to the introduction of a mandatory three-month course in forensics for anyone studying for a medical license. The days of men like Dr. Marshall, whose amateur opinions would often be enough to condemn innocent men and women, will soon be over. It's also around this time, nearly 15 years after Eliza's death, that the question of Eliza Fenning's innocence suddenly reemerges. In a surprising twist, not one, not two, but three alleged deathbed confessions surface, all of which seem to revolve around Eliza's employer, Mr. Robert Turner. The first of these is reported in the Morning Journal newspaper, published in 1829. It reports on the death of Robert Turner. The writer claims to have been passed information about what really happened that day in 1815. According to his sources, Robert Turner confessed on his deathbed to having been the one to poison his family, not Eliza. It doesn't give any detail around who was by his bedside when he supposedly uttered these words, or touch on what his motives may have been if it were true. But no doubt it chimes with the chemist who came forward at the 11th hour with his story about Robert's frenzied fears that he'd one day harm his family. A second confession surfaces four years later in the winter of 1833. This one is printed in the Times newspaper. It states that Robert Turner's brother made a similar claim on his own deathbed, saying that he, not Robert, was responsible. The third and final one surfaces much later. In a publication called Notes and Queries, it's claimed that it was in fact a nephew of Robert's who slipped the arsenic into the Turner's food. There's scant detail outside of the mention of the confessions themselves. Clearly, all three can't be true. But one thing it does is highlight how little consideration the original investigation and trial gave to identifying other possible suspects. If the case happened in the present day, a conviction would be highly unlikely on the evidence presented, with strong grounds for appeal. Then again, perhaps justice was served and Eliza Fenning was indeed the murderous hand behind the devilish dumplings. The truth is, innocent or not, she had little chance of fighting her case when so much was stacked against her. Next week on Deathbed Confessions, we meet Gabby Petito and Brian Laundrie, a young couple with dreams of seeing the world together. But somewhere out on the road, those dreams take a darker turn. When Gabby and Brian go missing, both of their parents start looking for answers. At first, they hope for the best, but as the days pass, they begin to prepare for the worst. The story of Gabby and Brian is a tale of how life isn't always what it seems. 
especially when you look at it through the rose-tinted spectacles of social media. Deathbed Confessions is a Spotify original from Parcast, produced in partnership with Noiser. Executive produced by Max Cutler, Drew Cole, and Pascal Hughes. Developed by Julian Poirot for Parcast. Series produced by Addison Nugent. Associate producer, Nicole Edmonds. Written by Rob Scragg. Supervising editor, Jane O. Sound supervisor, Tom Pink. Sound design by Cody Reynolds-Shaw. Edited by Carla Flores and Rob Plummer. Mix master by Cody Reynolds-Shaw. Music by Oliver Baines and Dory McCauley. 